Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So uh, oftentimes in the news, when you see the NCAA mentioned, you will see conversations about the enforcement process uh, and issues that member institutions might be having and determinations that are being made by the NCAA as an organization through its membership as to how these issues should be resolved. Are there going to be sanctions imposed? It seems from the outside that it might be this Byzantine process. Uh, From the inside, I can tell you personally, having been a member of the Division I Committee on Infractions, it's not random. It's not arbitrary. There's a lot of thought that goes into this process. There's a lot of guidance. But there are also a lot of situations that pop up that are challenging to everybody, the member institutions, the people involved, uh, and those in the NCAA. So... We thought it would be helpful to, to give everybody out there an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the process, especially how the, the enforcement folks, when they're going to begin an investigation or in their midst of investigation, what sort of guidelines they use and, how the, and, and what the members should know about what sort of guidelines they use. So with that, as a rather long introduction um, to our friend Derek Crawford, who's spending some time with us today, uh, enforcement managing director, uh, has had a, a fascinating background himself. And we're going to talk a little bit with Derek about uh, some updating of some guidelines that have taken place here. Derek, nice to have you with us. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to start off with your background because, as I mentioned, you've got a, a fascinating background. I, I, when I look at the different things that you have done in your life um, and, and how it's brought you to the NCAA, um, I, I find that it's, it's, it's not just curious but really intriguing. So let me start off with, with your background and take us through college, law school, professional experiences, and, and ultimately landing here at the NCAA. Certainly. Uh, I've been, uh, I guess, uh, associated with college athletics for many years. I grew up in Auburn, Alabama, uh, and both my parents were staff members at Auburn, so I, I knew Charles Barkley. Right. Uh, and Charles, so Charles is a friend and, a, and, a, and a, a marvelous and interesting human being. That he is. And, uh, and then I did my undergraduate and law school um, at the University of Alabama, so I spent the first 25 years of my life in two large uh, college towns where So you've got some conflicting Roll Tide and War Eagle stuff going on here. I cheer for Auburn unless they're playing for us. All right. Um, uh, But uh, I've been around intercollegiate athletics. You know, I grew up uh, in that environment uh, in Auburn and then going to law school and undergraduate at the University of Alabama. Um, And so I've always uh, understood the importance of college athletics and higher education in, in our society. And um, and so after I graduated, I became an FBI agent. Uh, I moved to New York City, uh, which was fascinating from a number of vantage points. The biggest city I'd ever lived in prior to New York was the great metropolis of Tuscaloosa, <laughs> which is about 75,000. Some, some culture shock jumping from, from Auburn, Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Alabama to New York City. To New York. My uh, New York City was about seven and a half million. <laughs> so it was it was quite a culture shock, but it was fascinating about for a lot of different reasons. The best work in the FBI is in the New York office. Yeah. If you want to work organized crime, if you want to work foreign counterintelligence, um, anything that you want to do, you can do in New York. And I had the opportunity to work on uh, a wire intercept, just as been mentioned in some of these these prominent cases. So I had a great experience as a young agent uh, in New York. I spent five years in the FBI, and then I got the trial bug. I wanted to actually uh-huh. try cases, so I had an opportunity to go back to my home state of Alabama and join the Alabama Attorney General's office, where I worked for Jeff Sessions, 
our current attorney general. He was the attorney general of the state of Alabama and hired me. And I worked for Jeff and I prosecuted public corruption, white collar cases principally. And then I had a kind of a bit of a detour. I got an opportunity to go into intercollegiate athletics. I'm what they call a boomerang employee. This is yeah. my second go around as a member of the NCA National Office staff. I was a young investigator on the enforcement staff uh, and investigated a number of, of cases. And then I got an opportunity to work for the National Football League. So I moved back to New York, spent about a decade with the NFL, principally in its office of general counsel and I oversaw litigation and football operations and lots of different issues. Then I spent a couple of years on college campuses uh, in uh, Carolina, South Carolina, as well as California. And then I got recruited to come back to the enforcement staff about six years ago, uh, first overseeing the football group, and then later I got promoted to managing director. And in that role, I oversee the day-to-day -day operations of all of our investigations and processing. I have about four directors who report to me and about 17 assistant and associate directors who report to them. One of the great benefits for me, my group of directors has about 80 years of investigative experience just on the enforcement staff. So I have the luxury of having very experienced directors who help me manage our investigative and processing function. Yeah, and I can tell you again, having having served some time on the Division One Committee on Infractions, and, and I've said this in the past mm -hmm. publicly, I've said to people, look, you might disagree with decisions that come down mm -hmm. through the enforcement process, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I said, and I think this is always important about even the justice system mm -hmm. itself, and having been a, a former prosecutor, former right. trial attorney, um, you might disagree with the result, but the the the, the process the, you have to appreciate the integrity right. of the process and the integrity of the people involved, and that's sort of an unsolicited compliment mm -hmm. from me to you uh, for the people that work there. Because again, there were some times where I disagreed right. within the committee members Absolutely. within the committee work mm -hmm. ab about findings, but I always knew that the people mm -hmm. that were doing it were there for the right reasons. Absolutely, and, and they I, and they were absolutely. deeply invested personally and professionally in what they were doing. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what's most important to us, we understand the, the work that we do, uh, even in the best of times, will not make us popular with yeah. the membership. When you're investigating people's conducts, the stakes are high, we get that. So we're less concerned with whether we have disagreements with the membership. Reasonable people will disagree. What we, we care about most is they felt they were treated fairly, right. that, that they really had a a fair process, there was due process that we considered a number of factors when we made our decisions. And so that's what we do when we engage with the membership. And after every case, uh, our, our vice president, John Duncan, has a presidential call. And he talks to the president or the chancellor to see what the experience was like for them and how can we make it better. Because our goal really is to uh, try to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect, but that is a goal. But to make sure they felt they were treated fairly, that they were heard, that even if we disagree about the allegations that were made or even findings from the Committee on Infractions, which is not our uh, purview, but the key for us is that membership feels treated fairly and with respect in a difficult process. And so that's what we strive for more than anything. You and I were both prosecutors, both mm -hmm. trial lawyers, and, and we worked in a, in a realm that involved an adversarial process, mm -hmm. indeed even a confrontational process sometimes. And I think people from the outside look at enforcement mm -hmm. and infractions, and they think it is that. Mm -hmm. is, is it that? To be honest, there, there are elements of that, but I think our process is not designed to be adversarial. It's designed to really get at the heart of what occurred to present those facts to the membership committee on infractions. It's peer reviewed and to have the membership judge 
those institutions and determine whether or not it occurred. As the stakes have grown higher, and they certainly have, there's more money in intercollegiate athletics today. One of the big differences I noticed as a young investigator than when I came back was the presence of outside counsel. When I was on the staff 20 years ago, you rarely had a major infractions case at a D1 institution that was investigated by private law firms. It was generally the general counsel, the chief compliance officer, maybe a few other. When I came back 20 years later, it completely changed. Virtually every one of our Division I cases we have more engagement with private law firms who those institutions have retained. Why do you think that is? I think because the stakes are just so high. Um, when you look at the revenue that's involved with a major infractions case, if there is a postseason ban, scholarship reductions, the institution will not be competitive for a number of years. And so the schools want to have the best representation they can afford to help them navigate through the process. We think that's a good idea. There are a number of really good practitioners who are seasoned, experienced, know the process. We disagree, but we have good working relationships with them. And I think the better counsel that they have as well as coaches and involved parties, it really helps the process. But there can be an adversarial component to it because we know when we show up on campus and most likely careers are going to be infected. There's going to be reputational harm to those member institutions. Uh, There may or may likely be uh, employment actions with a coach or an administrator. And so we get that the stakes are high and there's a fair amount of unpleasantness. We try to minimize it, but we understand there is an adversarial nature to the process, although we try as best to minimize that. Let me ask a question, and I think some of the folks that will, will ultimately be listening to this understand mm-hmm. this, but there might be some folks from the outside listening that don't. Sure. Uh, you talk about the, the, the rules and regulations right. that have been promulgated, and, and they come into play if somebody says there's been a violation of these rules mm-hmm. or regulations. Where do those rules and regulations come from? Well, the rules and regulations, they really come from the membership. You know, the membership owns the bylaws. They, uh, they pass the bylaws that we operate under, that we conduct our investigative authority is in bylaw 19 in division 1, 19 and 32 in divisions 2 and 3. And so we conduct our investigations be- on behalf of the authority granted to us by the membership. We also have additional IOPs, which are internal operating procedures that are outward facing, and they are also approved by the Committee on Infractions and by the Division One Board. And so that adds a greater level of transparency in terms of how do we go about conducting investigations on behalf of the member institutions. I think what's really important to us is to add a level of transparency because the investigative process is oftentimes mysterious. It's somewhat shrouded in secrecy because we do have very strict confidentiality bylaws for a number of different reasons. And so those operating procedures and bylaws hopefully give the membership a view in terms of how do we conduct those investigations on their behalf? How do we do the business that they've given us uh, responsibility to conduct? Let me let me focus a little bit on on some of the the more recent work in terms of providing better guidance Certainly. to the member institutions and and let me focus on on the the four areas that I I don't want to say that the primary areas mm-hmm. but they're certainly significant in in this world right and and the first one and again I I, I go back to my experience on the committee um, we, we talk about the, the lack of institutional control. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the, the institutions and members are terribly fearful of because it, 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 it's a significant indictment, I think. Let's go back to our terminology yes. as prosecutors. 
Um, talk a little bit about what your group has been doing in terms of, of trying to give member institutions a better understanding mm-hmm. of what they should be looking at, n- not just after the fact mm-hmm. when there have been some allegations, but before in, in terms of prevention. Certainly. I mean, it's one of our common uh, themes missions, values, enforcement, we would much rather prevent a violation than process one. And we really mean that. We do a lot of proactive outreach to the membership, whether it's at regional rules, whether they invite us to conference presentations to come on campus. We feel the better the membership is informed about potential violations, problem areas, the better off they will be. And we see it kind of from a 30,000-foot vantage point because we are a national association. They may see it at a 15,000-foot level at the conference level and then the institutional level 5,000 feet. So we give them kind of a global view of what we're seeing nationwide, whether it's in football or men's basketball or whatever the sport is. So we really take to heart to try to be proactive because, again, we see the damage when there is an infractions case and there's probation. So we really make a concerted effort to try to be proactive and educate our schools. Um, To your point about institutional control, it is the most significant or a serious allegation we can make against an institution. And the penalty structure reflects that. And it's in essence, the institution had a fundamental breakdown in its checks and balances in terms of how it governed and operated its athletics program. We take great care to make when we make an allegation of institutional control because we understand the reputational harm as well as the penalties that go with it. So the committee has said to us in the past, staff, we want you to be very, very certain about when you make an allegation of, of a lack of institutional control, much in the same way an individual allegation of unethical conduct. Um, so the bar for us is very high in terms of charging. And what the guidelines, the charging guidelines do, it doesn't really um, put forth new policies. What it does is it memorializes the current practice and it puts it in one place. So there are a number of authorities that we looked at in the past in terms of how do we make a, what are the guidelines and factors when we allege institutional control. What our new guidelines have done is really codified the current practice and put it in one location and made it very transparent to the membership because we get a lot of questions from the membership. What are the factors you consider when you're going to make an institutional control allegation? And we want there to be, there's no secret sauce. Here it is. Here's what we consider. There's also give and take dialogue with the membership when they're involved in an infractions case. Are you sure institutional control is the appropriate allegation? And we take that seriously because our ultimate goal is to get it right. And again, we want to be perfect, as I said earlier, knowing that's not always achievable. But our goal is to get the charging decisions right. I go back to my days as a prosecutor. Charging decisions are the most difficult decision you make because you want to get it right. You don't want to overcharge. And we would rather undercharge or not charge at all. Mm -hmm. But we want to get it right because if we make an institutional control or unethical conduct, we've had some institutions tell us, if you charge our employee with unethical conduct alone, and we're a state institution, irrespective of whether the committee ultimately finds it or not, we have to fire that employee. So there, are, con- there are significant consequences significant when you're talking about that realm. And we, we understand the gravity of that, and we take it very serious. There's a rigorous uh, review board, an internal review process, where all the directors of our department come together. 
and we discuss it. And it's, sometimes it's three to four hours. Sometimes it's a full day. We go allegation by allegation. You have to justify this to the whole department, the leadership of the department. And we pick it apart allegation by allegation because we want to make sure we get it right because we understand the ramifications for an institution when we allege institutional control, and even more so if the committee finds it. We don't allege it very often. There's sometimes a misperception in the membership that we allege it. We did a study a few years ago, and we tracked over the last five years. We only allege institu institutional control in less than 20% of our cases, but when we do allege it, the committee finds it about 80% of the time. So we're very judicious in the application of that allegation for all the reasons I've just stated. Um, but when we do allege it, we feel good that our batting average is quite significant, that the committee, the membership agrees that this is a institutional control violation. And, and am I correct then that going into these with regard to institutional control, there's not an assumption off the bat that there no. is a lack of institutional no. control. That, that, you've got to climb that mountain, so you've got to, to speak, climb. Yeah, we really let the, we let the evidence or the information of the case mm -hmm. inform us about whether or not we ought to make that mm -hmm. allegation. We don't, and then sometimes there's that perception maybe among fans and even in the membership that we have a preconceived notion. And one of the things you, you talked about earlier about the integrity of the staff, and, and I've worked with a lot of great folks over the years uh, when I was a prosecutor, FBI agent. I put my colleagues on the enforcement staff right at the top of that list. Um, they're, they're people of tremendous integrity. About 40% are former student athletes. Uh, they take their jobs seriously, but not themselves. We try to have a lot of humor in what we do because it is stressful. And they are people of tremendous integrity. Not perfect. We make mistakes, but they really take what they do seriously. And, and they really are just people of, of tremendous integrity and ability and want to do right by the membership. They care very much about the game. Uh, because I said many of them are former student-athletes, and having that opportunity to get a grant and aid and go to college as a student-athlete was transformative for many, for many of them. So it's something we take very seriously and to do the job with ethics and integrity um, and, and, and to make sure we get it right, to, to always be fair, um, to try to be open-minded. We're human. Sometimes we have our biases just like anyone else, but we really strive for that um, because we get the impact of it. Um, many of our staff, we've made a concerted effort to hire people from the membership. Membership said a few years ago, enforcement needs to have a greater connection to us. You need to hire more people from the membership. So the last three or four hires on our staff have come from the membership and from Division One institutions that give us a more real-world view of here's what goes on on a campus compliance environment every day, and we've just hired two or three or four people who came from that background. You, you mentioned the notion of prevention, mm -hmm. that it, it, it's, a, it's a part of your function. Here's where it's a little bit different from you're, you're not a prosecutor right. in the way you and I were prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the misperception on the public is they, they look at you all as prosecutors. Mm -hmm. In terms of prevention, if you got a, a phone call from somebody who's a new athletic director and says, you know what, I, I want to look at this and, and I want to know what kind of structures should we have in place and what sort of, sort of processes and what sort of checks and balances, will you actually sit down with somebody and say, okay, here's, let us give you some guidance so that hopefully you don't show up before us as somebody who's the subject of an investigation? Absolutely. We do that quite regularly. We have a conference contact program. So every member of the enforcement staff is, is assigned to every conference within the association and within those member institutions. So we do a lot of proactive outreach to the membership. Again, regional rules, 
we go out to conference presentations. We're often invited, you know, whichever conference is having their spring compliance meeting. Come and talk to us about what you're seeing, what the environment is like, what are the trends, what are the issues. We also come out individually, and we encourage the membership when they are here in the national office. There are lots of committee meetings and other things. Come by and visit your enforcement staff. We work for you. We don't want the only interaction we have with the membership to be in the context of an infractions case. But come to us and talk to us, and we're happy to share with you. We don't have all the answers. We just see a lot of things you may not see. We also have a development group that's very different from my group. My group is the more traditional investigations and processing. I have a counterpart, Mark Hicks, who's our managing director for development, and that has a much more proactive approach. The folks in that group don't have the same background that my team does, where my team is many former prosecutors, people that have law degrees. That group is more former coaches, people who have knowledge about the environment. And part of that approach is to be proactive and educate the membership. Here are the trends that we're seeing in men's basketball or track and field or football so that the membership can know what's occurring. If it's in California, the schools in Miami want to know what's going to be before it gets there. So that's our development group is very proactive in what it does. But that's part of our overall philosophy. Again, we would rather prevent a violation than investigate one. So anytime the membership wants to engage with us, we are happy either to come out, have a conference call, Skype, any way that we can interact with them and let them know what's occurring and what we're seeing so that they don't end up before us or the Committee on Infractions. It's something we'd much rather do than process a violation. Let me ask you about an area that that I think generates a great deal of interest, especially on the part of the public, Mm -hmm. outsiders looking in. And that's the question of head coach responsibility. How it, it, we, we talked before about lack of institutional control. There's mm-hmm. no assumption going into that right. that there was a lack of institutional right. control. If you're going into a case where the, the allegations in, involved head coach responsibility, is that looked at any differently, at least initially? It is, and the reason why is because the head coach responsibility kind of has two prongs. You have to promote an atmosphere for compliance. You have to monitor and so the monitoring part is where there is the, the, the presumption because head coaches are responsible for the violations committed by the direct or indirect reports. And so you are presumed responsible for those violations. So if an assistant basketball coach commits a violation, the head coach is presumed to be responsible for it. It is a rebuttable presumption, as we say in legal terms, so the head coach can absolve him or herself of responsibility by showing all the things he or she did to promote an atmosphere of compliance and to monitor. So they can rebut it, and they do that oftentimes because there are a number of ways it plays out. We may not even bring the allegation, or if we bring the allegation, the committee may not find it because they may say, we believe the coach rebutted the presumption. He or she had all these programs and training, and you just had, for example, a rogue assistant coach. No compliance program, no matter how robust, will prevent every bad actor, um, but it makes it more difficult. So if a coach is personally involved, that's not a rebuttable presumption. He or she is personally involved, and they will be uh, they can be charged for their personal involvement. But where the rebuttable presumption uh, comes into place is if their assistant coach or a director of basketball operations or an assistant equipment manager. It's anyone who reports directly or indirectly to the head coach. If he or she commits a violation, it's as if the head coach re- committed it, but he or she can rebut it. 
And the membership changed this about four or five years ago because they I, wanted I want to ask you that because that I mean that's something that has come from the membership itself. Absolutely. Because we've seen some scenarios where you had some member institutions who were on the wrong end of the allegations right. mm-hmm. saying is this fair, is this fair? But the, the fact of the matter is, again, we talked about this before, you don't make up these rules. This is the membership right. that said we want the head coaches to be where the buck stops, literally and figuratively, and they their responsibility? Absolutely. The membership wanted greater accountability from their head coaches. There was a concern. I remember when I came back to the staff in 2013 and the head coach responsibility legislation was just going into effect, at least the the uh, presumption of responsibility. That What I'd heard from the members and from our staff was that there had been a concern that too often head coaches escaped responsibility for violations that occurred on their staff, that the assistant coach was oftentimes for lack of a better word, the fall guy or the fall girl, and that the head coach was not found to be responsible because there was no direct link between the head coach and the violation. And so the membership was concerned that coaches were not being held accountable, head coaches, and so they reform 11111, which is the head coach responsibility bylaw, to say that head coaches can no longer just escape liability for what your assistant coach does. If they, if assistant coach commits it, is if you committed it and you're responsible. Now, it's not strict liability, nor right. should it be, but it's a rebuttable presumption. You can rebut it and you can be absolved of responsibility, but you've got to demonstrate it by a clear standard what you did to educate your staff, what you did to monitor them. Did you promote an atmosphere of compliance? Did you do all those things that we expect of a head coach? And it cannot be a responsibility that's delegated to compliance. That's why they call it head coach responsibility and not compliance responsibility. We said to the head coaches, I was invited to speak to one of the conferences uh, a few years ago when the legislation first came out, and a very prominent coach challenged me on it and said, are you saying that that I have to go out and be a private detective and an investigator? And I said to the coach, no, that's not what the legislation says, nor is that the expectation. But what it is saying is that you should have a very close relationship with your compliance staff. You have to... um, you have to empower your compliance staff to conduct these investigations. That means you got to let them know what's going on. So if you hear about a prospect who's taking his fifth or sixth unofficial visit to your institution, you need to let your compliance staff know. How is he coming here? How is he paying for that? That's what we expect from head coaches. That's what the membership expects. So you have to empower them. If we show up and we see an arm's length uh, or you keep them at a distance from your compliance staff, that's not a good sign in terms of satisfying that obligation. Your compliance staff really needs to be your best friend, and they need to be empowered to work with your staff and to investigate these things and then report back to the appropriate authorities, whether that's the athletics director or to you or whomever that is. But you really have to engage them to help you monitor your program. You don't have to go out and do it and be a detective, but you have to make sure the people whose responsibility is to investigate are empowered to do it and that you work with them and you support them. And if you do that, you're not going to have a problem with the enforcement staff. Well, Derek, you and I could talk for hours about this. It, it, it is such an integral part of what the NCA does. And again, most importantly, all of this comes from the members themselves. And they have said, this is what we want our rules to be, and we need you all to make sure that they're enforced. It's, I, I think, an, an area that people don't understand as well. Even member institutions don't understand it as, as well as they need to. And hopefully this conversation will have helped some folks to get a, their hands uh, around all of this and get a better understanding. Derek, it's a pleasure. Good talking with you. Thank you so much. You take care. 
That does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon. <laughs>